You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch at Calvary Chapel of Crook County as he teaches through the book of Joshua. If you have your Bibles with you, let's join Pastor Ryan now. Uh, If you have your Bibles, Joshua chapter 10. Continuing to go through the Old Testament, and we're in the book of Joshua, and we're just about halfway through, and of course the book of Joshua is all about victory, and it's all about entering into all that God has for you, and and pursuing uh, the, the place of abundant life rather than falling short of that, which would be compromise, and, and which would be just you know, living in defeat, which is what so many of us uh, just sort of, I think, grow accustomed to and, and what so many think is the norm, that this is just what it is, that I'm defeated, that I'm living in sin, that I don't have any abundance in my life, and that I'm not fulfilling what Jesus said, which is that he has come to give us life, and life more abundantly. And I think if, if some people, some of us believers, truly entered into it, it would be like, man, I wonder if I'm even saved. Uh, I was taking my dad to an appointment when I was up visiting him, and he, he told me, he said, you know, Ryan, I don't think I was saved the last 17 years. I don't think the Holy Spirit lived in my heart. And because now he knows what that's like. And it's like, I wasn't experiencing this before. This is a, this is a new experience for me. And I wonder how many. You know, it's kind of like people drive their cars around and they're, they're running on three cylinders or five cylinders. And, you know, and, and they're just driving it around thinking, you know, this is how the car is supposed to run. And then a mechanic says, man, it sounds like it's missing or something's wrong. And, and they, you know, hook up that spark plug or they fix whatever the problem was. And it's like, wow, I didn't know my car had so much power. And I think that is, is what so many Christians settle for is running on three cylinders. And it's sad. And, and I think we can all be in that place and, and, and we all need to evaluate uh, where we're at. And maybe some, like my dad, Maybe not even saved. Maybe others just need to, to pursue Jesus and make him the center uh, of your life. And so Joshua chapter 10, you remember last week in chapter 9, they, they made a mistake and they, they invited these Gibeonites to, to be at peace with them. And they signed a treaty and little did they know they, they weren't from a far off country they were actually indigenous people to the promised land. They were Canaanites, and they were supposed to be rooted out of the land. But because of their fear of the Israelites, and mainly the God of the Israelites, and they had heard of all that had happened and transpired, and they're like, we don't want to be a part of that. We don't want to be the next victims. And so they, they devised this plan in which they deceived the Israelites, and they, they fooled them into signing this treaty and now, they're going to have to, that is, the Israelites are going to have to pay the piper. And whenever we compromise, and whenever we choose to not hear the voice of the Lord, which is exactly what it says they did. They chose not to listen to God. They didn't seek counsel of the Lord. And whenever we do that, and we make stupid decisions, and we've all done it, there, 
there are repercussions for that. Some of them bigger than others. Sometimes it's a huge price. Other times it's, it's smaller prices. But there's always prices to pay for our bad choices. And oftentimes we want God to bail us out of those things. And, and for God to, you know, free us from the repercussions. And, and He doesn't do that. He wants us to learn. And, and yet, in the midst of that, Jesus never leaves us. He never forsakes us. And we still have victory, which is what we see. We saw it last week, and we're going to see it here in, in this passage as well. And, and I want to kind of just look at three things as we navigate through the text. We're going to see the cause of the conflict in the first five verses. And then the course of the conflict, kind of how they, they resolve it and how they take care of it. And, and their action plan, that'll be verses 6 through 15. And, and then the completion of the conflict, and it's, it's pretty brutal and decisive. And that'll be verses 16 through the end of the chapter. So let's read the first five verses and, and look at kind of the cause and, and what led up to this conflict. It says, Now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, and remember, they have not inhabited Jerusalem yet. So you've got to think of Jerusalem not as the capital city of Israel, not as the place of worship in the site of the temple. This is Jerusalem pagan style. This is before they've taken it over. That won't happen for quite a while until David really sits on the throne there in Jerusalem. So you've got to kind of think of Jerusalem in a different context. This is, this is a completely different Jerusalem at this time. And this king had heard how Joshua had taken Ai. He had just taken it and besieged it, right? It was no problem for them. They had utterly destroyed it as he had done to Jericho and its king. So he had done to Ai and its king. And how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them. That they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city. Like one of the royal cities. And because it was greater than Ai. And all its men were mighty. Therefore, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Deber, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, that we may attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Therefore, the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, and the kings of these five cities gathered together and went up, they and all their armies, and camped before Gibeon and made war against it. And so there's a couple things just to take note of as we see the cause of this conflict. These, these five kings decide that, look, we're in, a, we're in a pickle here. We've got a problem. We're going to be the next victims of this raid through Israel or through the promised land. And we need to do something about it. And the, the way they chose to protect themselves was by going up against Gibeon, which was kind of a backwards way to go to war against the Israelites. They were afraid to do that directly, so they thought, well, we'll attack the Gibeonites because they've made peace with the Israelites, and so surely the Israelites will come to their rescue, and, and maybe in the chaos of it all, uh, we can win the battle. And I want us to notice that Gibeon was a great city. We see that in verse 2. Which tells me that when the Gibeonites, last chapter, went 
to the Israelites and deceive them, it wasn't because they didn't have a powerful army. It wasn't because they couldn't have defeated the Israelites maybe in the natural. It was because they were afraid of the God of the Israelites. They had heard of His power and His might. And I truly believe that although the Gibeonites went about it the wrong way, that they had faith in the God of Israel. That they had heard about this and and that they came to trust Him and, and believe that they needed to do something to protect themselves. And I think they went about it the wrong way, but they did truly believe that God was powerful. And we see that in that Gibeon was a great city. It was one of the royal cities. It was greater than Ai, and all its men were mighty. There's clear that they probably could have wiped out Israel apart from the power of God. The other thing that I think is interesting is that these compilation of kings that gather together ultimately against Israel, but initially against Gibeon, the reason they attacked Gibeon is because they knew that the Israelites would keep their word. And that when they went up against Gibeon, the Israelites would have to keep their word, the the treaty that they had made, and that they would come to their defense. And that tells me that the Israelites had a reputation of being honorable and honest and people of their word. And I wonder if that's the reputation that people in the church have. I wonder if that's the reputation that we have. That when people hear our name, that they think, yeah, that person does what he or she says they're going to do. Yes, that person is honest. Yes, that person is honorable. I think that's important as Christians. I think that's important as a church that we have a good reputation. And I hope and I think we do have a good reputation as, as Calvary Chapel in this community. I, I would hate to, to have a reputation that, that we're anything other than that. Honest and honorable and trustworthy. But individually, in our business practices, in our workplace, in our families, in our neighborhoods, are we honest? Do we do what we say we're going to do? Do we pay our bills on time? Do, do we honor our word? If we tell somebody, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come over, I'm, I'm going to help you, do we do it? And if we can't because we're sick or something comes up, do we call them and let them know, hey, I won't be able to do that? Or whatever the case might be, are we people of our word? I, I think that's important. It's very important. And I don't think there's anything worse than Christians who are dishonest, Christians who are dishonorable, Christians who are flakes. And it's, it astounds me in the church uh, how many people will, will just not do what they say they're going to do. And, and I think we see here with the Israelites that they had a reputation, and they're going to stand behind that reputation as we, as we move on here. And we see the course of the conflict. That there wasn't even a hesitation on the part of Joshua to come to their defense. Look what it says. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp at Gilgal. Saying, do not forsake your servants. Come up to us quickly. Save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together 
against us. Now, I think if, if I were Joshua, I might think to myself, well, here's an opportunity to get out of this commitment that we made to them. Because they didn't make a commitment to go to their defense. They just said we wouldn't attack them, right? The treaty they signed was that we won't go to war with you. We, we will leave you alone. They didn't say that if somebody else goes to war with them, that they would come to their defense. And yet, that's exactly what they do. They went above and beyond what they said they would do because they signed this treaty and they made this commitment. Again, I think challenging for us to go above and beyond what we say we're going to do. In, in our workplace, do we go above and beyond what our boss would expect us to do? Or do we do just enough to keep our jobs? Just enough to keep our boss from firing us? You know, we, we kind of figure it out like we do or like we think we do with God. You know, I'm just going to do just enough. And, and that concept is really warped and whacked. It comes from our legalistic human tendency. But that's what we think, right? I'm going to do just enough. And that's what so many do in the workplace and even Christians. I'm going to do just enough. I'm going to show up right on time. I'm going to leave right when the day's over. Even though, if man, if I worked another 20 minutes, I could get that done and really help out the, the crew that's coming in behind me or the, the, the day tomorrow. But I don't think about that because all I'm thinking about is myself. Do, do we do above and beyond what people would expect? Or, or do we do just enough to get by? I, I see here that, that these people, they went above and beyond. And that's, that's challenging for us, I think. Because we live in a society that says, serve yourself, do just enough to, to get people off your back and to keep the creditors from, you know, taking your house away or shutting the power down or whatever. Do, do just enough to get by. But man, as believers, I think when we look at Jesus, we see a guy who, who went above and beyond. When he turned the water into wine, the, the host said it was the best. What Jesus did was always the best. And it is, again, it astounds me when, when Christians do shoddy work, when Christians do just enough, when, when churches do half, I don't know what the word would be to fit in there, you know what I'm, <laughs> half stuff, you know, when, just stuff that you go, man, that looks terrible, that building looks like it's going to fall apart, and, or whatever. And you think, why, why couldn't we have just put a little more effort into that? Why, why can't we go above and beyond what would maybe be the norm? And, and that's, I think, very, very challenging in the year 2008 in the United States of America it, to go above and beyond. So Joshua, verse 7, ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. He brought all his best men. And again, I think I would have said, hey, good luck. This is our opportunity to get rid of you guys. But he brought his best men. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. And there was here a command and a promise. And whenever God gives you a command, he always gives us a promise. 
God doesn't give us a command without giving us the, the power and the ability and the enabling to fulfill that command. God doesn't ever say, hey, I want you to go out and do this and you're on your own. He never does that. He always says, this is what I want you to do and here's how I'm going to enable you to do it. He tells Joshua, look, do not fear them. Well, that's easy to say, right? You got five against one. You got powerful armies against armies that are tired and have been traveling and they they would have to travel from Gilgal to Gibeon which was a 20 mile journey and they would have to ascend 3300 feet on foot so think about that you got a whole army 20 miles ascending 3300 feet you're going to be a little bit exhausted by the time you get there and and of course as a military strategist this is going through the mind of Joshua Man, we, maybe we should stop halfway and, and rest and may, we need to figure this out, how we're going to defeat them. And, and God says, look, do not fear them. And here's why. I have already delivered them into your hand. So the, the command, do not fear. The promise, I've already delivered them. Not a man of them shall stand before you. What is, what is it that God is commanding you to do? Of course, there's many commands in the word. But maybe there's, there's something right now that's challenging for you. There's something that you're struggling with. And, and God is bringing that command to your, to your attention. He also brings along with it a promise that He's going to enable you to do it. His commandments are also His enablements. None of us have an excuse to say, well, I couldn't do it. I wasn't capable. I, I, I didn't have the, the strength or the ability. no. If God tells us to do something, we have the capability to do it. It's, it's not like me telling my three-year-old son to go and run a chainsaw. Well, he, he has no capability of doing that. I couldn't do that to him. But when God tells us to do something, he enables us. He allows us. He gives us the ability. And Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly having marched all night from Gilgal. Again, not the greatest strategy, right? March all night, 3,300 feet, 20 miles, you're exhausted, and now we're going to attack. Again, it just goes back to the fact that God doesn't do things the way we would. He oftentimes stretches us and challenges us. Just like when they entered into the promised land, what was the first thing they did? They took all their soldiers and they circumcised them. Brilliant plan. Right? And again, I mean, this isn't good military strategy, but it's what God called them to do. So the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beth Horon, and struck them down as far as Azekah and Makeda. And it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Horon that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. And that's cool. There were more that died from God's supernatural work than what they did on their own. And let that be a a great lesson for us, that when we step out in faith, and in a sense, and I hesitate to use this word, but I think the mental picture is there, 
that when we partner with God, I hate that term, but when we partner with God, that He meets us there. And He, he wants us to be a part of it. He wants us to, to step out. And in a sense, he, he waits for us to do that. And then when we do that, it's like He opens the floodgates and He blesses us. He doesn't just say, okay, I'm going to take care of all of it and you sit home and watch ESPN or the Food Network, whatever. You just do whatever you want to do and you just sit around and and I'm going to just take care of everything. No, he says, get up, be proactive, and when you do that, then I'm going to meet you and I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make it work. And I think that happens all of the time. And that's, a, that's quite the ring. No worries. It happens all the time. I think about this building when we stepped out to, to do this building project. That we didn't have the money, that we weren't sure we were going to have enough help. That how are we going to do this? And it, what started out to be kind of a real simple project. And, and you know, we're going to just, you know, kind of make it look pretty good. And as we got into it and more and more stuff that we thought we needed to do, and and all of a sudden, it was just really cool to see God kind of like this, send hailstones, if you will, and just bless it and, and provide for it and send enough help and turn what was a building that looked horrible into what you see now. And so, great principle here. I love that that verse, there were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. Let that be an encouragement to you. That, and when you step out, and you don't know what's going to happen. That God's going to meet you. And He's going to bless you. If you don't step out, and you just sit at home, or you just sit around, and you just think that God's going to take care of it, you miss out on that. They marched all night long. They climbed the mountain. They were exhausted, and yet they obeyed God, and then God did a, a, a miracle. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun stand still over Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there has been no day like it, before it or after it, that the Lord heeded the voice of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. So they're fighting and they're battling and God's sending hailstones and people are dying left and right and they are just cleaning up. And they're having so much fun in, in the victory of, of the Lord and in experiencing His power that Joshua's like, Lord, hold back the setting of the sun for another day that we can continue in this. And initially I think of like when you're in that place where God is blessing you and you're experiencing His presence and you're serving Him, maybe if you've been on a mission trip, maybe if you've just been in, in those places where, man, you can tangibly feel the presence of God. You don't want that to end. 
You don't want to come home. You don't want to have that experience stop. And unfortunately, we kind of live in that, don't we? The, the mountain, the valley, the mountain, the valley. And, and God wants us to, to, experience, to experience that more often, I think. But when you're in that, you don't want it to end. And, and that's what Joshua was, was in. And he said, Lord, have the sun stand still and give us another day. And it's amazing, that's exactly what happened. Now, how did this happen? How did this happen? Because we know that the sun isn't rotating around the earth. The sun doesn't stand still. The, the earth would have to stand still because it's the earth that's rotating around the sun. We also know that the earth can't just come to a ceasing halt because everything would fly off of it. It'd be like a car going 100 miles an hour and you got a coffee cup sitting on the dash, slam on the brakes. The earth is spinning violently. I mean, it's, it's moving. We don't realize it, but the earth is moving and scientists have discovered that. So what happened here? Well, first of all, we don't really know. I don't think we can explain this away and, and sometimes we try to do that, right? Like with the, the story of the feeding of the 5,000 People say, you know what happened? It wasn't really a miracle. What happened was the boy gave his lunch, and then everybody was so touched by that gesture that they all gave their lunches. And that's kind of how people explain away miracles. No, this is a bona fide miracle, and that's why we can't explain it. And I'm sure you've all received the email, you know, that NASA's missing a day. You know, I, I don't know about that stuff. It sounds cool. I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, it sounds cool, but I wonder if there's like a guy that just sends out all these emails that sound really cool. I have no idea if that's true or not. If it is, praise God. But I have zero idea if NASA's really missing a day. In, you know, it's like, how did they figure that out? You know, I mean, how many calendars do you have to look at? But if that's true, cool. But I just believe that this happened. How it happened, I'm not exactly sure, but I think this makes sense to me. I think that we know that the earth spins around the sun one time every 365 days. We know the moon is spinning around the earth one time every, you know, 28 to 31 days. And so I think that it would be very easy for God to slow down the rotation of the earth. Because He would know exactly how to do that, wouldn't He? To slow down the earth just enough that stuff doesn't go flying off of it. That people don't just like, you know, go blowing out into the universe. He could do that where he could slow it down just enough, and it wouldn't be that much if you think about it, to give an extra day so that the sun would seemingly stand still for that extra 24 hours. And so instead of having a 24-hour day, you would have a 48-hour day. And, and God could do that. And that makes sense to me. I can, in a sense, wrap my mind around that a little bit. And I think that's a, a way that, as believers, we can explain that to a certain extent. That, that God could easily do that. If we believe that God created the world with just a word, then this shouldn't be that hard to believe. That God could do this. He could give them an extra day. And, and we believe that, and, and, and that's exactly what happened. And he honored Joshua's 
request, which I think is huge. Because how often do we not ask because we think, well, God wouldn't do that, or God can't do that, which is kind of unbelievable for us to think, but we do, and we don't ask. And what does James tell us? That we don't have because we don't ask. And I think we need to ask more of these kind of crazy things and be very specific with God and say, God, this is what I need. Lord, this is, this is what I need you to do. And if you do it, great. And if not, then I'm just going to trust that you have a different plan. But, but asking very specific things that just don't make any sense. Asking for the sun to stand still doesn't make sense. Now, that terminology, the sun standing still, critics of the Bible have a problem with. They say, well, the sun doesn't stand still. The earth's rotating around the sun. That does, hey, we, don't we use that terminology all the time? The sun set, the sun rise. Does the sun set and rise? Is there like a little thing that goes up and down? Of course not. We know that isn't true. And yet every scientist uses that terminology. Any almanac says sunrise, sunset. We know what it means. It means that the earth rotated just enough to be out of the, you know, our side of the sphere would be away from the sun for that period of time. We know what it means, the sunrise, the sunset. And that's exactly what the Bible's saying. The sun stood still. It's using that kind of terminology to describe what happened. And as we finish up verses 16 through 43, we see the completion of the conflict. It says, But these five kings had fled and hidden themselves in a cave at Machida. So the, the kings, great leaders that they were, they run off and they hide in a cave. And it was told Joshua saying, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Machida. So Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. And do not slay, stay there yourselves, but pursue your enemies and attack their rear guard. Do not allow them to enter their cities, for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. Then it happened while Joshua and the children of Israel made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter till they had finished, that those who escaped entered fortified cities. And all the people returned to the camp, to Joshua at Machida, in peace. No one moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. Nobody said anything. They were fearful. They were in awe of what God was doing through these people. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings to me from the cave. And they did so and brought out those five kings to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, Eglon. So it was when they brought out those kings to Joshua that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the captains of the men of war who went with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they drew near and put their feet on their necks. Then Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. Be strong and of courage, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and killed them and hanged them on five trees. And they were hanging on the trees until evening. So it was at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees, cast them into the cave where they had been hidden, and laid large stones against the cave's mouth, which remain until this very day. And on that day, Joshua took Machida and struck it and its kings with the edge of the sword. 
he utterly destroyed them, all the people who were in it. He let none remain. He also did to the king of Makeda as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua passed from Makeda and all Israel with him to Libna, and they fought against Libna. And the Lord also delivered it and its king into the hand of Israel. He struck it and all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword. He let none remain in it, but did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua passed from Libna and all Israel with him to Lachish, and they encamped against it and fought against it. And the Lord delivered Lachish into the hand of Israel, who took it on the second day and struck it and all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, according to all that he had done to Libna. Then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish, and Joshua struck him and his people until he left him none remaining. From Lachish, Joshua passed to Eglon and all Israel with him, and they encamped against it and fought against it. They took it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. All the people who were in it, he utterly destroyed that day according to all that he had done to Lachish. So Joshua went up from Eglon, And all Israel with him to Hebron, and they fought against it. And they took it and struck it with the edge of the sword, its kings, all its cities, and all the people who were in it. He left none remaining, according to all that he had done to Eglon, but utterly destroyed it and all the people who were in it. Then Joshua returned, and all Israel with him to Deber, and they fought against it. And he took it and its king and all its cities, They struck them with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed all the people who were in it. He left none remaining as he had done to Hebron, so he did to Deber and its king as he had done also to Libna and its king. So Joshua conquered all the land, the mountain country and the south and the lowland and the wilderness slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. And Joshua conquered them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon. All these kings in their land Joshua took at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. I mean, I read all that and and kind of wanted to emphasize that they left none remaining that they utterly destroyed everything that was in their way. God had told them that they would have victory. And they went and they entered into that. And I love this, this portion there where they bring these men out of the cave. They put their feet on their necks. Joshua said, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage. The Lord's going to do this to your enemies. And then Joshua struck them and killed them and hanged them on five trees. And they hung there until the evening. And then they took them down. They put them in the cave and they put the stones. I mean, why all of this? This seems harsh. This seems brutal. I mean, I'm thinking of like Braveheart. This is kind of manly stuff. This is cool. But why all of this? I think there's a real reason for it because Joshua wanted the people to know, look, we have victory We have been given victory. There's nothing that's going to stand in our way. And he wanted them to be reminded of that. Does it sound familiar to you at all? In Colossians chapter 2, you don't have to turn there, but in Colossians chapter 2, we 
read something very similar. It says that we were dead in our trespasses, but that he made us alive together, having forgiven us our trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, the law, all of the rules and regulations, trying to approach God in your own strength. And he took it all away and he nailed it to the cross. He disarmed the principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. A public spectacle at the cross. And that's, you guys, what God in Christ wants us to be reminded of. That at the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. He made a public spectacle of these things. Of the things that are getting in your way right now of complete victory. The things that are getting in your way of abundant life. He wants you to recognize the public spectacle that Jesus made of those things. He nailed it to the cross. And you need to see that thing as having been nailed to the cross. That there's nothing that needs stand in your way of what Jesus wants to do. Nothing. And whatever it is that's in your way, whatever sin that might be, whatever struggle, whatever issue, you need to see it nailed to the cross. And that you've been given victory over that. That you have complete victory. 1 John 5, 4 says, Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Whatever is born of God. Have you been born of God? Are you born again? Then you've overcome the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Oh, here it is. This is the victory. This is the step, man. This is, this is the good stuff. This is how I do it. What is it? There must be a formula. There must be a whole bunch of steps that I need to take. There must be a whole bunch of things that I need to do. All kinds of hoops that I've got to jump through. What does it say? This is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. That just as they made a public spectacle of these kings, that Jesus made a public spectacle of that thing that you're struggling with, that sin that you can't find victory over, those people that are driving you insane, that physical difficulty that you just are allowing to ruin your life and to basically disqualify you because you're so consumed with it and you're not allowing God to work through you despite it, that trial, whatever it is, Jesus wants you to see it nailed to the cross and that you have victory. doesn't mean that you're going to be healed. It doesn't mean you won't continue to struggle. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have difficulty. What it means is that you have victory, that you already have it. We don't work toward it. Just like he told Joshua, I'm giving them, I've delivered them into your hand. This was something that was already done. Delivered. That means it was already accomplished. You guys, we don't work toward victory. And if you're trying that, if you're trying to work toward victory and you're trying to make it happen, guess what? You've already lost because you're on the wrong path. You're on your own path and you're hacking and you're making a trail and you're sweating and there's this beautiful two-lane highway that's cleared out and you're over there off in the brush and you're trying to make it happen and God says, man, there's a clear way right here. You don't have to do this. You don't have to struggle. Look to the cross. Look to what Jesus has already done. He said it's finished. Do you believe that? Do I believe that? Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. It's, it's kind of like John is saying there 
that that's assumed. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. So we have to ask ourselves, why am I not overcoming the world? And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Why am I not overcoming these things? Because I don't have faith. I'm not walking by faith. I'm not living in faith. I'm not trusting God. It's unbelief. Our God is too small. We've put him into a little box and we said, this is what he can do. And apparently he can't help my situation. But he can. He will. He already has. Jesus said, these things I have written to you, I have said to you, I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. He wants us to have peace. He wants us to have victory. In the world you will have tribulation. Again, a given. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. Listen, I have overcome the world. In this world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, you guys. He has overcome the world. Do we believe that? I don't know if we do. Because we continue to make excuses. We continue to say why we don't have victory. We continue to, to wallow in our own sin and our own struggles. And, and what we need to do is what Joshua did with those men. That's what we need to do with our sin, with our difficulty. We need to see them as having been made a public spectacle that they're already dealt with and they are put away in the cave. The stone is shut over them and it's done. Why are we allowing these things to continue to hinder us? Because we don't trust God. It's the bottom line. Let's stand and pray together. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch of Calvary Chapel, Crook County. For more information, you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thanks for listening, and God bless.